Welcome to episode 46 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Now, this is our last podcast before we take a summer break. So we thought we'd look back over the years since last July and celebrate some of our amazing guests. We've covered a range of topics from theatre, cinema, art, museums, books, festivals, dance, music, opera and big issues of the day. So this is going to be a bumper issue that you can dip in and out of as you like. Let's start with theatre and Andrew Lloyd Webber talking about what prompted him to stage Cinderella. Finally, after a very, very long wait, opening at the Gillian Lynn Theatre any minute now. Here he is last October. What happened was about five years ago, I was at a dinner in New York with a lot of very, very major TV executives. Um, and I was rather out of my depth because I didn't really know too much about TV, really. Um, and they, um, at, the end, at the end, they were all saying, what was the biggest thing that ever happened on television? And uh, they were all saying, ah, Super Bowl with Michael Jackson or blah, 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 you know, and all of that. And I said, hang on a moment. I think you might find that Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella uh, in 1956 was way up there, if not actually the biggest audience that ever happened for American TV. And they looked at me as if I was a sort of poor, <laughs> sad, you know, kind of thing. Poor, poor boy, you know, he loves his theatre, but he's a bit past it. So one of them Googled, one of them Googled it and uh, said, oh, holy mackerel, <laughs> he's right. And um, so immediately these TV executives said, oh, well, why don't you do a Cinderella for us? Well, because, how, uh, hold on, just one second. How many people watched the Cinderella in 56? I didn't know this. It's, it's about 120 million. No. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> unbelievable. It was Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. It was done live. Uh, it was one of the first things to be done in colour on American TV. Um, and it was starring Julie Andrews. Uh, and, it, oh and it's something that, that we in this country, we don't really know it. Um, because I, I don't think it was never shown here. I, I don't know why, actually, but it was never shown. But it, the whole thing was it was a live event. And uh, most of America at the time seemed to watch it. Incredible. Anyway, um, so these TV execs said, you know, why don't I do one? And so I got blitzed with the most ghastly stories that you can imagine. You know, I mean, you, you could kind of <laughs> guess the sort of thing. Um, and and, and uh, so um, I, I just happened to be, I know um, Emerald's dad, Theo, very, very well, Theo Fennell, the jeweller. Uh, Friend of and, the yeah, yes, yeah, indeed. Theo, yes. And and Theo, anyway, so, you know, well, I was I, I've known Emerald since she was about two. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I, I um, was having lunch with uh, with them uh, around the corner from us here, and in in Hampshire. And uh, Emerald was at the lunch, and she said, "Can I have a crack at it?" So I said, "Well, you send me a synopsis, but I'm pretty dubious." Anyway, she sent me this brilliant, very funny, very alternative uh, storyline, and I thought, do you know what, I'm going to do this. Um, and, but of course, me being me, I hijacked it from TV and put it in the theatre. Every theatre in the land shared Andrew Lloyd Webber's frustration. And of course, he's now suing the government uh, because of the months and months of being closed. But here's Nicholas Heitner last November talking about his theatre, the Bridge Theatre in lockdown. And of course, he was working with Simon Russell Beale, who was our guest on last week's podcast, in A Christmas Carol. So look, I'm going to be honest that that it wasn't what we thought we were going to be doing. Um, we, <laughs> we've um, we've gone through so many different iterations of what we were going to do over Christmas, over the beginning of next year. But the deal now is we just have to stay light on our feet and um, react to the situation as it comes at us. There was a time, I don't know if you remember it, when in 
100% good faith, everybody was hoping that um, by November we might be able to invite full houses in again. So we had plans for the full house scenario. Then we thought we might do bring forward Ibsen, John Gabriel Borkman, a wonderful, exciting, great play, but a serious play. And then it became clear that we weren't going to get full houses and that has seven actors and and is quite ambitious and we thought the only way we can do that is if we guarantee to ourselves that we can sell every seat and we realized we couldn't so we could because you can guarantee nothing these days so we postponed that postponed that a bit and in came christmas carol for three actors that's great for simon russell beale who was going to be in the ibsen uh, and I both love Dickens and we never really done any Dickens and Dickens uh, needs adaptation before you put it on the stage. Uh, so this just felt like a, a great thing to do. And the way we're doing it with three actors is essentially the three actors will use the book. Uh, there's no enormous act of theatrical adaptation going on. Uh, what they'll speak is what Dickens wrote, but they will play all the parts between them and it will be the kind of theatre where uh, you hope that between three incredibly skilled actors and a big pile of stuff, uh, you can create a whole world. You can create London, you can create all the Christmas parties, you can go on all the journeys that the ghosts of Christmas past, present and yet to come, take Scrooge on. And so I, I hope it'll be I hope it'll be a really festive, spooky, um, exciting and inventive evening. There you go. Now, being able to talk to so many theatre directors kept us amazed by how many of them just kept carrying on. We talked to Indu Rubasingham, Artistic Director of the Kiln Theatre in Kilburn, about winning Theatre of the Year. We talked to Anthony Biggs about turning the Playground Theatre into a West London community hub. We found out about the new immersive digital Midsummer Night's Dream. We cheered on the National for staging Panto with Dick Whittington at Christmas to cheer us all up. We've raved constantly about the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre and recently had on Isabel Adamarco Young, star of this summer's production of Romeo and Juliet. We salute all the theatres that have survived. Last November, we talked to Giles Brandreth about his new book, The Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes. And of course, here he is with a Brandreth classic. For me, one of the real tragedies of this pandemic has been the lack of live theatre. Uh, yeah. I really have, have felt that. And we need, I mean... Theatre is so different from film and television. I mean, I've watched some wonderful stuff in the last six months, but gosh, have I missed live theatre, where, where it's different at every performance, where there is something, there is something between the audience and what's happening on stage, and that is gone. And really, the reason that I brought out this book now is because people can't, on the whole, go to a normal theatrical experience. Some theatres are beginning to sort of creep back, but normal theatre, as we know it, has disappeared for the time being. And so what I've done is create a book 800 pages long. It sends you to sleep, I mean, literally, because if my, <laughs> my wife was in bed last night, it fell back on her face. She was concussed. Um, <laughs> but it gives you, it gives you scenes from the world of theatre over 500 years, from the time of Shakespeare to the present day. And I've been collecting, I suppose, theatre anecdotes since about 1960, when I was a little boy, and I went to see my first Romeo and Juliet at the Old Vic Theatre in the Waterloo Road, starring the young Judy Dench. It was almost her breakout moment, her Juliet. And she was barely out of her teens, and it was a production by Franco Zeffirelli, 
And uh, it was wonderful. And I remember the production so vividly because Judy Dench ran onto the stage, her opening line as the young Juliet, she ran towards the nurse, the nurse played by an actress called Peggy Mount. And as she reached the nurse, she spoke her opening line, Judy Dench. She said, where are my mother and my father, nurse? And a voice from the third row of the stalls called out, here we are, darling, Rosie. <laughs> And oh, years, years later, when I met Judy Dench, I told her this story. She said, it's true. It really happened. We've also had some wonderful guests on from the world of cinema. That included Oscar-winning British cinematographer Sir Roger Deakins. We talked to him in L.A. with his wife, James Ellis Deakins, about their own podcast as well. Here we are back in February this year talking to the actor Hugh Bonneville. He played Roald Dahl, of course, in the film To Olivia. And he talked about what it was like to work with the wonderful Keely Hawes, who, as you'll discover when you listen to this clip, is a huge fan of yours truly. Our listeners know that Keely Hawes is a huge fan of mine. <laughs> um, she never stopped talking about you, Ed, on set. It was all I could do to shut her up. It, it, is, it is embarrassing. Every, every, every time I see her, she tells me how good I am on something called The Right Stuff, which has since been cancelled, I think. Um, anyway, I am actually a massive Keely Hawes fan, partly because I can't turn on the television without seeing something with Keely Hawes in She's it. She's everywhere. Oh, she's she is. She is. She's everywhere. <laughs> Lockdown. Hello. Um, I've called, with... co- called her COVID now. <laughs> <laughs> Have you worked with her before? Do you know? And she won't thank me for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I worked with her when she was a child actor. Um, oh one my, of my god! Yeah, one of my early jobs was at the National Theatre uh, in a play called Entertaining Strangers, and and uh, there was a rotation of children in the play, and uh, one of them was called Ms. Keely Hawes. Um, and then we did a thing called Tipping the Velvet when she was uh, oh, yes. certainly, certainly not young. I mean, you know, it was a more of an adult project um, yes. with yeah. uh, Rachel Sterling. And then again on this. So, uh, yeah, we've had a few a few encounters over the years. It's been fun. Oh, she's brilliant in this. And tell us about the amazing child actors in this. It's so rare to find child actors who are totally, to use a sort of slightly naff um, technical word present um on screen they they to- they they completely inhabited their roles but they also completely understood the nature of filming um Isabella particularly I mean she'd cry at the end of the day cuz she didn't want to go home she loved it I actually wrote to Isabella's mum and said you know I've, I've never done this before but you do realize you're, you've got to realize that your child has a re- genuine talent and if this is a passing phase super but if she has a desire to carry it on into the future you know, I really believe she's got it, whatever it is. You know, it's it's a, a it's a presence on screen. The camera adores her, but also she just has an instinct on set. She could take direction. These are you know young children, seven or so, um, could take great direction very easily and be inventive. Some of the scenes, some of the dialogue between myself and Isabella uh, Tessa uh, are improvised. And she was just wonderful at it. And Darcy melts your heart as Olivia. She's, she's just beautiful. Yes. Later in February this year, we caught the British director Paul Greengrass in thoughtful mood, telling us about his latest film, News of the World, with Tom Hanks. Here he is telling us about the important role that movies have to entertain us with good stories in a world full of fake news. Brilliant. And what I'm really interested to know is who or what do you think might be the contemporary equivalent of the... Tom Hanks character, the storyteller and newsreader, if you like, who can heal modern day America. Well, not just America, the whole world, actually. Well, uh, it's interesting you ask that. I mean, it, it because I did ask myself that through making it. I mean, when you look at the way that 
the profession of journalism, if you like, has been assailed. I mean, it's never mm. had a high reputation. It's sort of always sat, <laughs> sort of one up from politicians and estate agents and used car salesmen, you know, and, and probably rightly so, you know, down at the bottom of, of public trust. But the currency of truth is something that's never really been challenged in my adult lifetime until I'd say the last 10 years. And I think in this country and in America, that has been a profound, profound problem. Because if you pollute the waters and leave people not really knowing what's truth and what's lies, I think that's a lot to do with the rise of technology too, social media and all the rest of it, probably more in a way. That is a real problem. I think storytelling is important because storytelling is a collective activity. You know, we're the storytelling animal, aren't we? We tell stories to our children. We tell them around the kitchen table. We tell them in the pub, street corners, at work. You know, that's what we do. And, and of course, in our cinemas, in our theatres, in our concert halls, you know, it's storytelling, isn't it? And I think that is something that has really has suffered through this COVID crisis. I think your first prime and only responsibility, if you tell stories, is to entertain people. Now, I work principally in the in the world of commercial cinema, you know what I mean? It's not it's not subsidised cinema, and that means that I'm in the tradition, you know, the great American narrative tradition of cinema. It's a it's a different tradition to other tradition cinematic traditions in the world, you know. Narrative is important. But it is important to me. It's important if you want to reach an audience that you tell them a good story. Here's another British director, Kevin MacDonald, talking in April about working with Jodie Foster on his astonishing and harrowing film, The Mauritanian. So just um, to go back to the film itself, I mean, clearly, I think this is Jodie Foster's first film for 10 years. Something like that. I think because she's done a couple she sort of tiny little things, but yeah, yeah she's she very pivoting. fussy. <laughs> yes, well, that's that was... You, You've you've seen the subtext of my question, Kevin. How <laughs> what what was it about fussy Jodie Foster that turned her on to the Mauritanian? That why did she want to do this movie? How did you get in touch with her? What was she like to work work with? Well, the flippant answer is that she liked the title. So I think she got the email which had the script attached. She said, "What is the Mauritanian? What the hell is that?" And she read it, and I think she's quite a political person. Yes, and. Uh, so she thought, this is a story I, I want to be part of telling. And she also, she's a, she's tremendously um, grounded and not at all vain, you know, which are not necessarily two characteristics that most actors share. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and uh, she always knew this is, this is not a film about me. This is not about, this is not about my character. This is about Mohamedou. She, she also actually told me, well, the first time I met her, we spent hours chatting about the, the script. And she, her, she said to me that briefly as a teenager, when she, she was a teenager, her mother had converted to Islam. And yeah, yeah in Hollywood in the 70s, her mother was also her manager. And uh, so she went to the mosque a few times with her mother and she was always fascinated by it. So she had, and her mother had just recently died three weeks before I met her. So I think there was some connection there as well, emotionally, that she sort of, you know, she was reminded of a period of her life. I was nervous because, you know, she's a legend and I haven't yeah, worked exactly. any other, you know, real proper legends. And um, you imagine that she's, you know, worked with Scorsese and worked with Robert Zemeckis and Spielberg and whoever, you know, she's worked with everybody. And um, you sort of wonder how you're going to measure up. But she is, she's 
incredibly helpful, incredibly diligent, comes prepared, never tells you you're doing it wrong, which is <laughs> which is important when you're a director. <laughs> so your actor starts rebelling and telling you you're not doing it right. Um, but uh, and she would always do every note that you would give her, no matter how sort of stupid it might have seemed, she would try and achieve it. And she's been so supportive of the film since. Jodie has done, you know, days and weeks of doing Q&As and talking to legal associations, talking to the Muslim Council of America, talking to every journalist going. She's really sort of followed through in her commitment to the, to the story. Um, so, yeah, I've got nothing but admiration for her. When it comes to art and museums, we've had some amazing guests. We talked to Tony Hall, who until very recently, of course, was chairman of the National Gallery. We talked to Charles Samaray-Smith. He's run three of our major galleries, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, and the Royal Academy. And we talked to the gallerist and great art sleuth, Philip Mould. We've covered museums and galleries from Pallant House, the Hepworth Wakefield, to the Museum of the Home. We've talked about the Design Biennale, the Kensington Chelsea Art Festival, the Other Art Fair, and many more. Being true digital natives, we've discovered the Vov, and Lobsteropolis. We've talked to artists galore from Zach Ove and Julian Opie to Conrad Shawcross. But here's the famous fashion designer turned sculptor, Nicole Fari, talking about her sculptures of famous lesbian couples, which she showed at the Fine Arts Society in Carnaby Street last December. I researched the history of women's sexual liberation in mostly uh, during the 20th century. And um, I discovered this world of incredibly uh, bright women, artistic, uh, intellectual um, writers uh, from America, from England. And uh, the, the one link they had that most of them went to live in Paris uh, during the 20s, 30s, between the wars. and. Um, Looking at one couple, my first couple actually was uh, Gertrude Stein and Alisto Klass. And then... With their poodle, with their poodle basket, with their you've actually sculpted. Basket. Yes, I, <laughs> yes, I also discovered by doing uh, those women that uh, most of them, a lot of them had uh, a pet that this they is, adored. This uh, is very, very important for a British audience. That, uh, <laughs> that we mentioned yes. the dogs dog, as well dogs, as the couple. Dog lovers. And I have to say, I love doing the, the, the dogs and cats, monkeys. I mean, they, they, it was... A, uh, it added, I think, some humour to the work. And also, as it was about love, it's also about love for uh, animals and uh, how incredibly important to our life it is when we, we live. You have a dog, Ed, so you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> it really uh, was a fantastic uh, way of spending the last eight, nine months in the company of those women. And here, of course, are the inimitable Gilbert and George talking to us back in March about their exhibition, The New Normal Pictures at the White Cube in Mason's Yard, which I was lucky enough to go to. I've had a virtual tour, but I'm very jealous because Charlotte is actually with them in the flesh at the gallery. I am, Ed, and I can confirm that the exhibition is even more sensational in real life. It comprises 26 pictures from a series of over 85, I think 85, that Gilbert and George have been working on for a year, this year, I think. They'll tell you us all about it. And quite simply, it's a gloriously brutal depiction of 
London. But rather than me trying to talk about it, I'm going to hand over to them. Hello, Gilbert and George. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Now, there's so much to talk about, but first, can we talk about these pictures? You said your subject matter is the world, it's pain, and certainly these pictures make our city look pretty bleak and dark, even though they're absolutely bursting with day glow colour. So give our listeners a bit of a sense of what they're going to be seeing. Well, we're very proud. We don't believe it's a bleak picture of our world. In fact, we believe that we're all spoilt brats. Never do people <laughs> have so, so much privilege and more people travel to more countries. We're more privileged and more able than ever before. It's a great triumph, the West, Western civilization. I mean, we started to take images for these pictures one and a half years ago. And instead of, start, uh, instead of looking up in the sky, we started to look down on the floor. And so we started to see a totally new world where we walked every day because our we have this journey that we are going to, towards the end. And it's very exciting for us to see what is actually going on on Earth. Like what sort of things? Balloons, needles, drugs, whatever you want is there. Because we are not satisfied with what is here. We want something else all the time as human beings. So we want to be drugged up. We want to be sky high. The sun is not good enough. That's what we see now on Earth today. Tell us about the, the, the colour. We had to discover colour. We, we were not like normal artists or ch children artists or amateur artists who start with a box of paints. We started as sculptors, so we had to find... It took us four years to find red and then another year to find yellow. And so colour for us is something very special and not... We don't come from a picture-making background. The colours are not there to, for people to enjoy. They're there to help carry the message and the thoughts and feelings and beliefs to the viewer. I mean, we all started out as black and white first. Then to make it more like a campaigning art, we used to have red on top of it. And after it became more a kind of emotional art, us or how we feel inside ourselves, not what we see outside, all what we feel inside. The colors come from expressing our inside. Every single one of these pictures, like all of our art, every, everyone is a visual love letter. Anyone who listens to this podcast will know how important we think art is and how much we've missed being able to go to museums and galleries in lockdown. Here's the broadcaster Andrew Marr on the subject when we had him on to talk about his own recent exhibition of paintings. Do you think being an artist, and I think it's fair to call you an artist, that the artistic sensibility, as it were, does that change one's approach to politics? Good question. Um, the only thing that I can see that connects the two is that I am quite emotional and um, I have strong emotions and strong reactions to things. And I think you can tell that by the way I uh, do my interviewing. And I've got an endless uh, insatiable curiosity about the world around me. So I am really, really interested in why politicians do things, what the real outcomes of what they do are going to be, are, how they cope with the extraordinary pressure they live under. And those are all things that are reflected in the paintings. But it, it, is, a, it is a terrible cliche, of course, that Winston Churchill was loved to paint. And as indeed oh, yes. did the late Duke of Edinburgh. Do, do you think, I mean, would that say anything about Churchill, do you think? As opposed so, to, say, Attlee, who didn't paint. <laughs> well, we know that Churchill had his black dog and these terrible depressions. Um, and was under ferocious pressure for a lot of his life. And he turned to painting to give him a release. And in a sense, at crucial times of his life, uh, painting saved Churchill, saved his sanity. And therefore, I think you could argue, if painting saved Churchill and Churchill saved this country, then painting saved this country. 
sort of. Wow. I'm going with this. Do you think politicians take the art seriously enough? Not at all. I'm really, really upset about it. I'll give you two examples. We have now several generations of kids coming through British schools who have never been taught that they can draw because they all can draw. And they've never been taught how to make images, how to draw the basics of drawing. Now, without the basics of drawing, you can't have design, you can't have engineering design, you can't have all the, the great craft designs that, you know, the, 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 the chairs and, and the design that British people have lived off. We are a great design country from ranging from Rolls-Royce engines to leather chairs, to clothes, to cars, you know, the shape of the beetle, the shape of... Now, all of that comes from drawing. It's not just about fine art. And yet we have robbed generations of children of the essential skills that they need. David Hockney was taught how to draw and is now probably the world's most famous artist. And by the way, one of those people who earns a huge income, not just for himself, but for this country by his art. But somebody with David Hockney's innate skills, who is currently 31 years or 21 years old, has almost certainly not been given the skills that David was given. And that is to rob that person of the ability to express themselves and make a good living. I think that's absolutely awful. So that's one example. And I'll give you one more example very quickly, which is that uh, currently uh, I can go into John Lewis and uh, jostle among people to buy shoes or shirts. And I can go into large supermarkets and spend as long as I want there. And I can go to some football grounds, but I can't easily walk into a major art gallery even those places, even though those places have huge rooms which have worked very well ventilated. And throughout this pandemic, it seemed to me that allowing people to go and see art has been lower down in people's priorities than pubs, restaurants, or anything else. And I think that's very, very sad and says something about us as a country, which we ought to be ashamed of. Here, here, Andrew. And here are the actor Russell Tovey and musician and gallerist Rob Diamant talking about how important access to art is for absolutely everyone when they came on in May to talk about the book of their hugely successful podcast, Talk Art. So I suppose my first question is, why do you think people are afraid to ask about contemporary art? I think people are, are threatened by it or, or scared of it or unaware that it's for them. So I know for myself, the reason we set up the podcast is because me and Rob have this shorthand for art. We completely love art. It's something that makes our lives so much better. It enriches everything. But for us getting into the art world, I remember going into galleries and opening a door and just sort of going, hi, can I come in? They'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, oh, are you sure? <laughs> like apologizing for being in there. Didn't want to take up too much time. Didn't know what I was supposed to do and leave because it does feel intimidating. So what we did with the podcast is we wanted to create this kind of language, this dialogue with other people that was more gossipy and fun than reverential and academic because we're geeks, we're not experts. And all we want to do is create a platform where we can be geeks and talk to people about stuff that we love. Yeah. And also, I, th I think there's a big kind of fear of being shamed or a kind of a fear of embarrassment. You know, the idea that that you might not know as much as someone that knows everything there is to know about art. And I've been at dinner parties where literally I'll say that I now because I now work in a gallery, um, Carl Friedman Gallery in Margate. And I often sit at dinner and I'm like, oh, I work in a gallery. And then people just literally end the conversation because I think they fear that somehow, <laughs> somehow we're kind of like intellectually superior. But the truth is, like, I got into art because of passion and, you know, through like 
like trauma in a way, like as, as a way of like healing and beginning to understand your experience as a human being. And I think on a human level, we all have this need and desire to create, whether we are artists ourselves, which I'm not. I mean, I made music, but I literally stopped making art at the age of 10 or 11. I didn't do any GCSE or anything. So for me, art was always this kind of otherworldly thing that only magical people did, you know. And um, and it's that passion that we have for art, which is what we're trying to get everyone else into. We've also covered photography. And here we are talking to Miss Anne Harriman, who, of course, has just become the chairman of the South Bank Centre, about being the first ever black photographer in Vogue's 104-year-old history to shoot its cover and how that came about. When the civil rights anti-racist movement hit the shores of the United Kingdom, I went out there with my camera and took pictures. Um, and as soon as I put those pictures online, they it was like a tinderbox that, you know, everyone that saw them had a very strong reaction to them. And everyone from the mayor of London to Lewis Hamilton and even the son of Martin Luther King himself used my images to make statements about racism. And, you know, along, you know, with, with so much visibility, Edward Enninful, of course, being on the pulse, um, saw those images and realised, as only people that are visionaries can, that my voice was needed, my visual voice was needed to tell the story of his September issue of British Vogue. On a much lighter note, here's the amazing Gerard Mankiewicz talking about his new book of photographs that he'd kept in a drawer for nigh on 50 years. They're all of the Rolling Stones at home in the 60s, which Gerard took when he was barely out of his teens. He's had an extraordinary career and we had great fun talking to him about some of it. So many rock stars harboured the sort of fantasy of living in the country with a big garden and Keith got into that very early on and and redlands he'd only just bought it so it was all uh it was all uh, new and fresh now looking back on it nearly 50 years later or whatever it is um you know 55 years for goodness sake um it, it they look I wasn't quite... going to say <laughs> it's a long, long, long time ago. I'm, long, I'm amazed long. he's still alive, frankly. But um, I mean, I get, I get, sort of get the feeling. I mean, I have a small house in Oxfordshire, and I, and I go there to escape the, you know, the relentless pressure of celebrity. And I can imagine <laughs> that um, that's probably what the Rolling Stones felt. If you buy you're quite house... like Charlie Watts, can I point out, Ed? Because you are. I'm always looking at you with your washing, just like yes. Charlie Watts is photographed uh, with his clothes horse. We record this podcast. <laughs> we record this podcast. We have video, and my laundry is always behind me. But I notice, Gerard, you have because you're a rock god. You don't have your laundry behind you. You have a gold disc propped up against the wall. Whose gold disc is that? Oh, well, I, I didn't realise you could see it, but um, it's, <laughs> I'll tell you who it is, it's ABC Lexicon of Love, um, oh, which, yes. I think, which I think was 1982. And, yes, and when I was I, a youngster. You were a well, youngster. I loved, a, I used to live next door to one of ABC and um, I loved ABC so much. I used to, I didn't know that I lived next door to a, a member of ABC. So I used to play the look of love very loudly until my neighbour knocked on my door and introduced himself and said, I'm terribly sorry, I really can't bear to go on listening to my own music <laughs> so loudly all of the time. No, that's uh, brilliant. That's a great you've just story. Ruined, uh, you've just ruined Gerard's anecdote. Oh, you know, I'm so sorry to interrupt. <laughs> of course, books have featured prominently on this podcast. 
and with them some of the major issues of our day. Here's Satnam Sanghera back in January talking about his controversial and brilliant book, Empire Land, the subject that went on to be hotly debated up and down the country. But um, my thesis in the book is basically that we are dysfunctional in the way we talk about British Empire. It's the biggest thing that happened to us. Arguably, it's the biggest thing that happened to the world. And yet we're stuck in this way of saying either we need to be proud of it or ashamed of it, which is historically illiterate. I mean, it's 500 years of history. You can't give it a five-star review like it's a kettle of Amazon, you know? We've got to talk about it in a more intelligent way. And my argument is it makes much more sense to talk about the legacies because the legacies are things we live with today. And those are things that you can actually say are either positive or negative. I would say one of the positive things is our multiculturalism. The reason I am here as a brown person talking to you guys is that some British people invaded India in the 17th century, right? But there's other legacies. There's a lot of our language comes from empire, our food, our internationalism. I think we have a certain tradition of anti-racism, which goes back to the fact that we abolished slavery. But on the negative side, we've got our legacy of racism. And I would say our particular brand of racism in Britain goes back to empire. We have the politics of exceptionalism, which you can see in Brexit and also in the way we handled handling the coronavirus crisis with this obsession with being world beating. And then you have our museums, which were basically built in parallel with empire and which we view in quite a dysfunctional way. And in the same episode, we had Peter York, forever famous, of course, for the Sloan Ranger handbook, but here he is with a passionate defence of the BBC. Now, you describe the new Director General, Tim Davis, as a whip-thin, marathon-toughened, modern marketing man. <laughs> so uh, your prose alone sets the stage for a very serious gloves-off fight. You're certainly not afraid to take on the big guns, so let's get started. It's a huge subject to cram in here, but give us the headlines. Who's out to destroy the BBC and why should we be fighting so hard to save it? Who's fighting to destroy the BBC? Here's a list of the guilty men and women. <laughs> it's mainly men, but there are a fair few women in there as well. Let's start at the beginning. A very large chunk of the Tory party has the wrong idea about the BBC, particularly that bit of the Conservative Party, which was most in love with Donald Trump and is most rapidly tr retreating from it, its former love protestations. So the Prime Minister, who thought that Trump should get the Nobel Prize, now retreating from that, has talked about whacking the BBC. The Prime Minister's spirit guide, the Red Indian who fortified him and took him along planning and strategy because he doesn't do that, namely Dominic Cummins, who I don't think has gone really, set out a plan to destroy the BBC in 2004. And it was very well thought through. It was very modern and it incorporated the latest American propaganda techniques. We've also covered a lot of poetry in the last year. Dr Kevin Childs has been on twice to tell us about his brilliant podcast for The Independent, one on Boccaccio and one on the war poets. We've had Chris Riddell, Dominic West and Ali Azeri talking about poetry and William Seacart, of course, on his hugely popular poetry pharmacy. Ed always says I'm the big novel reader out of the two of us, so it's perhaps no surprise that I'm always sneaking on my favourites. We've talked to so many from Hannah Rothschild and Camilla Shamsi to Meg Rossoff and to Mima Annam. And writers have come on to talk about everything from their apocalyptic post-COVID visions 
to the secrets of long-distance Ethiopian runners. Here now is the great Turkish novelist Elif Shafak talking to us about her book How to Survive in an Age of Division and curating the Cheltenham Festival back in 2020. And my starting point was this moment in time is so strange. It is so unusual and it's so scary in many ways. I think we there, there, there are lots of things we need to talk about. There's a sense of urgency. We need these public debates and we need nuanced public debates on a variety of issues. So that was my starting point. Point. How do we feel as, as fellow human beings from all kinds of backgrounds? How do we respond to this moment in time, to the pandemic and all the challenges that it is bringing into our lives? Before the pandemic, we also had, we already had a system um, full of, in my opinion, inequalities, gaps, you know, the, all the things that kept us apart as, as human beings. So in a way, the pandemic revealed the existing flaws in our societies, in our political systems. So it's an important crossroads in time. And we need culture, we need literature, we need art. Art is not a luxury we can put aside. It is essential, just as essential as the air we breathe or the water we need. I think it's very important for our mental health, for our collective sanity. And I wanted to honor um, the importance of the art of storytelling and, and creativity in general as I started guest curating. If we're going to go for sexist stereotyping, Charlotte, I'm a bit keen on historical books and novels. And in fact, on this podcast, we've covered a lot of history. Dan Snow has talked to us about Churchill's connection with Blenheim. We covered last year's Chelsea History Festival. And recently, the historian James Holland gave us the lowdown on this year's Chalk Valley History Festival. So back to books, here's Charles Spencer last November with his fascinating historical account of how the white ship sank. I think it's because the, the crew and the passengers were so drunk that they all came to an, the end they did because in the morning, a lot of the ship was still there intact and the Royal Treasury had been put on, the treasure chests had been put on board the white ship and they were still there. So it can't have been pulverized. Um, and I think if some people had stayed on board rather than panicking and jumping into the sea, they might have had a chance of surviving. You know, this is what, what I want. I love digging around in this sort of period because I hadn't appreciated that really almost nobody, uh, I'm talking about less than 1% of people could swim. Um, it was not a pastime. And uh, the only people I can find who could swim were, were those who lived for fishing and they had to retrieve nets or whatever. And those were people who were commissioned by the families of those who, who who were lost on the white ship to try and find their bodies because it was very important to to have a Christian burial. Yeah, interesting. Amazing. One of the things I was really intrigued about was how far ahead was the first ship then? I mean, and there was just clearly no way of getting any signal to them to turn back and help. I mean, it just seemed oh, to be sinking all by itself. Brilliant question, actually, Charlotte. So what, what, what you have is certainly in Barfleur, they heard the screams of the... Um, the people after they hit the rock, but they just assumed it was the royal party had gone up a notch and they were just having a, an uproarious <laughs> time on board. And do you know, I reckon it was about um, 10 or 12 nautical miles ahead, the king's ship, and they, some people had said they heard it in the night. Now, whether they wanted to just be associated with a moment of high drama or whether they could have heard it, it is scientifically possible. I mean, I don't bore the reader with this, but it is scientifically possible on a still night in the winter like that, that they could have heard uh, 200 people screaming at once. But whether they did or not, we'll never know. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. What fun. Uh, 
fairly engrossing chat. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just amazing book, and we won't speculate about uh, book number eight, which is presumably coming down the. Yeah, field. I've got to get that going. I tell you what, Ed, it's so difficult I, because I, I mean, taking on a book is such a commitment. You've got to make sure you've got the right subject. So I do tend to let things settle for a bit before before embarking on it full time. You know, as a full project. Are we allowed to know what the next one is? Well, I wish I knew. And here's saucy Lloyd Grossman last September, talking about his book, An Elephant in Rome, all about Benini and the making of Rome. And in fact, when I walked through Green Park the other day, I came across those straw elephants, straw elephant herd, and one of them is named after Lloyd Grossman. What a coincidence. Really? Yeah. Really? Amazing. Oh, just, is that to do with this book or not? No, I think he sponsored it. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Here's Lloyd Grossman. Now, Bernini is an artist who is really not very well known in the English-speaking world. I mean, yes, he's known to art buffs, but he's hardly top of mind uh, for most people. And this is kind of interesting because the 17th century is the century of some of the greatest names in European art. You know, it, it's the century of Vermeer and Rembrandt and Rubens and Velasquez. Yet, when they were all alive, unquestionably the most famous, most successful artist in all of Europe was Bernini. Bernini um, was an incredibly talented sculptor, painter, architect, town planner. He wrote plays, he designed operas, etc., etc., etc. And he was very lucky to have a close friendship with Pope Alexander VII, who in those days was the most important patron in Europe Alexander VII was one of the few people who could both commission and pay for anything he wanted He wanted to do. So this fantastic double act really transformed Rome into one of the world's first great tourist attractions and made Rome a place that everyone had to visit if they wanted to be considered a civilized and sophisticated person. In April, Edmund Duval, the ceramicist and author, known, of course, for the hair with the amber eyes, came on to tell us about his latest beautifully produced book, Letters to Commando. He was both moving and very candid about what motivates him to keep exploring his harrowing family history. I think my whole life in the last 20 years has been returning to places of trauma. <laughs> Charlotte, and trying to work out what you do, you know, what, what, you know, here I am, you know, hugely lucky man in my, white man in my late 50s in South London with a nice studio, you know, why, why do this stuff, you know, and the answer is that, that you can't, you, you can't swerve past it. That's why I, that's why I went back to Vienna. That's why I, that's why I, did something at the Kunsthistorische Museum, you know, which was the bloody hell, it was the museum that, it was the museum that, that, that orchestrated the systematic looting of all the Jewish households in, in Vienna. It, it, it dispossessed people from their possessions and then helped let those people go off to concentration camps. You know, so why work with the uh, Kunsthistorische Museum? Because you can, because you can do something there which has has strength and reality and talks about fracture, talks about making things all right, but about revealing broken histories. Uh, why work with the 
Musée Camondo because that is an extraordinary place which is all about memorial. You know, it's all about where memory sits in culture, in, in history. Why not? What, what you then do, of course, is bloody difficult because you don't want you want to make something which is beautiful and compelling well maybe the exhibition is part of the first steps to resolving this i ed i don't know if you can resolve anything you know i i i i I think one of the lessons that i had from the hair with amber eyes is that you kind of is that you i thought i'd finished you know I thought I'd done something really cool, which was to write my family history and release my kids from having to worry about all this stuff, make a connection with my dad in old age, and, you know. And then all the letters start coming, which is of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters from people who say, you know, I've got a story. This is my story. This really? is what happened to me. Yeah. What do you do with all that stuff? Well, you write letters. <laughs> or in my case, you write letters and you also, you kind of make things out of porcelain, which of course is, you know, obviously a material that is breaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that it can't survive. So, you know, in terms of sort of the symbolism of of all that stuff. It's very embedded. And here's the broadcaster, Matthew Paris, known, of course, for his long-standing Radio 4 programme, Great Lives, back in November, telling us about his new book, Fracture, and why he thinks genius is born from trauma. The link that I'm making between huge adversity in childhood, between often breakdown um, in childhood, between that and the emergence of genius is nothing to do with people becoming tougher or or more resilient. We're not the sort of scarred old Frank Sinatra um, character singing, you know, I, 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 I bit it up, et it up and spat it out and all that kind of thing. Especially in youth, when we're, 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 we're most, most raw and open uh, to the world, when everything seems to break down and when all our certainties are in some way shattered or put into question, that that can trigger in in some not most but in some human beings the emergence of what we call genius you'll ask me how i define genius i can't define genius but in so many cases in the cases i've studied a genius begins with an understanding that the world is completely wrong about something or everything it begins in a kind of despair about things and that that is even true in science as well as as in the arts. So it's the breaking down rather than the building up of people that seems to me to, to, to be sometimes uh, transfigurative. Ed's favourite question quite often is that um, you can't pick a favourite child, but if you've got a favourite character, which would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I like that question. <laughs> well, it's yours. You always ask it. <laughs> I've totally forgotten. I'm glad and you I've asked it. it. I've, I've stolen it today. <laughs> I was about to tell you my favourite one is I'll tell you in a minute. Finally on the book front, here's John Preston talking about his new book, Fall, which is absolutely superb about Robert Maxwell. And here in this clip, he explains why he thought Maxwell's wife, Betsy, might have stayed so loyal to him. But she stuck by him through thick and thin. And there's one incredible letter she sends him, which you quote from, where she says, you know, I don't care what I give up. I'll give up absolutely everything, but not you. Why do you think that was? I mean, she just never left him. I think she did adore him and, and, and venerated him. I think she had quite an old-fashioned idea of marriage, so um, she wasn't particularly bothered about his kind of periodic 
flings. I mean, old-fashioned French idea of marriage, I should say. But when he starts spending more and more time abroad and when he's more and more kind of brusque and offhand with her and the children, she very much saw it as her duty to try to keep the family together, to keep this kind of semblance of normality going. I mean, I agree with Charlotte. I was intrigued. I mean, she writes so eloquently and it's, yes. uh, it made me want to read her autobiography. I, mean, I, she's I agree. She's a powerful, powerful personality and I think an extremely sort of dignified woman, although there may be people listening to this who think, well, you know, she was complicit and it's outrageous, but... Well, I don't think she was remotely... Remarkable. Yeah, I don't think she was remotely complicit on it. I mean, because basically she and... Maxwell were barely talking by then, let alone colluding in anything. But yes, I think she was a remarkable woman. How do you explain all these other women who seem to be really quite violently attracted to him? I, th- I find that extraordinary. I mean, having obviously, you know, I've never met him, but he obviously did have this real magnetism that's beyond just the normal cliches about, oh, power and wealth. Yes, he did. And I mean, you know, he was also, as a young man, extremely good looking. You know, he was a really (laughs) very um, slim, handsome, virile looking man. Then, of course, you know, he does fill out dramatically as he gets older. (laughs) But he still was one of those people who could kind of dominate any room he walked into. He really was extremely charismatic. And there was some kind of rather kind of dark, baleful allure that he had. We've also covered a lot of dance and music on this podcast. One of our first ever guests was Stuart Murphy, the head of the English National Opera. He told us about his plans to stage what became an enormously successful drive-in to see La Boheme at Alexandra Palace last year. Listeners will know I'm also a massive fan of the Chineke Orchestra, so we eagerly invited its founder, Chichi Wanoku, on to hear about its growing success. And also, we were delighted to hear in a recent podcast that they've been involved in this year's Cheltenham Music Festival. John Kill Hooley came on recently to tell us about the reopening of the Wigmore Hall, a great favourite with my mum, as well as me. We talked to Raymond Gubby about lowering the tone and raising the roof of the Albert Hall. And just before Easter, Samir Savant told us about the London Handel Festival. You might remember we kicked off this year with Patricia Hammond and Matt Redmond singing Songs to Order. And we also had a hilarious time with the great Ian Rosenblatt when he told us about some of the perils of trying to stage a provincial music festival in his home village in Somerset. We're firm believers in the power of music to make the world a much happier, better place. And here's Ben England urging us to join the Self-Isolation Choir way back in November. Well, I've had singing lessons, and... Uh, Have you? <laughs> well, they're better than sex, actually. Can I quote you on that, Ed? Yeah, you heard well, it here I mean, first. I'm quoting now, but I mean, without wishing to stretch the analogy too far, <laughs> despite many lessons, I still can't sing. <laughs> can, no, I don't can think I can. somebody who can't sing become a... Okay, singer. The fact is that everybody can sing, but it's a it's a matter of degrees. It's a matter of permission. You know, how much do we give ourselves permission to sing um, without judgment? How much do we give ourselves permission to just enjoy ourselves and make sound? And that's that's behind all of the online singing that we're doing. Um, it's not about producing a, a studio quality performance that can stand shoulder to shoulder with you know professionals. It's about people in isolation, feeling cut off from the world, singing and feeling a connection with people. And so it it doesn't matter. And the fact is, it's a virtual choir. When we're rehearsing, I'm broadcasting onto YouTube and people are singing along at home. Um, So it's a a one-way 
a, a one-way broadcast. But what I get is feedback in the form of YouTube comments, which are streaming up constantly throughout the rehearsal. And, um, and people are talking and communicating and connecting and enthusing. And some, someone will pop up and say, I'm completely lost, where are we? And someone else will comment, page 45. And, uh, and in the end, at the end of the day, you get people saying, well, I can't sing a note, but I really enjoyed that. And I felt like I was part of something. Yeah, so good. so I, can, <laughs> I can rock up and sing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I did join the choir and I loved it. Not that I can sing a note, but I'll attest to what fun it was and how it was without question cheering up an awful lot of people in isolation. Now, I know you're also very keen on dance, Ed. Uh, the ballet boys were among our earliest guests when you cracked that especially brilliant joke about being a Tory boys with a set. <laughs> but moving on, here's the superb Akram Khan talking about the importance of experiencing touch again after COVID and his piece Mud of Sorrow, Touch, that he performed with Natalia Osipova. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, when Alistair asked me, what could you Alistair do? Alistair being the head of Sadler's Alistair Wells, being, I should yeah, say. The, Alistair the direct, Spalding. The artistic director of Sadler's Wells. And uh, I was thinking, what is the point of this event? And it was really a response, I felt, to what's happening in the world, the sense of our so many of our senses not being able to be active right now, movement being one of them, of course. So I felt quite strongly to what I was asking myself, what is it that I'm really lacking and missing right now? And that was the sense of touch, really, you know, dancing with someone else, partnering with someone else, being in a studio. And I heard a lot of stories because I have a student or had a student, she's now a doctor, and the horrific stories she was telling me of, just tragic stories, you know, of, of being in, in the hospital and seeing these COVID patients die and, and then one of the most important things that she wanted, uh, that, that she felt the patients wanted was to be touched. And they couldn't touch, the doctors couldn't touch them as well because they're wearing these gloves and they're covered in these kind of alien, you know, suits. It was just so tragic. And I thought, well, how, how can I reconfigure a work of mine, a previous work of mine that could relate to uh, uh, the lack of touch now and, the, and the, the power of touch? And so I invited Natalia Osipova to be part of a, a reimagining of a duet that I made with Sylvie Guillem. Uh, some years back and we brought in some really interesting collaborators like Suhaima Manzur Khan who wrote um, a few of the lines uh, of a poem, uh, original poem uh, called Do You Remember? And then we had some wonderful musicians like um, Nina Harris, uh, who's the double bassist, and she also arranged the music, and uh, Rahil Hussein, who's a singer. So just a combination of all of us coming together. I have to say, it was such a wonderful excuse to get back into a studio and, and to be able to touch and to be able to feel the other dancer. That was just, yeah, it was a very special moment. Finally, I'm often asked how I know Ed, and between us, we've had quite a few emails commenting on the banter between us. But we were both somewhat taken aback and at a loss for words when the tables were turned on us by the famous psychotherapist Julia Samuel, who came on to talk about her own podcast, Living Losses. So I listened to a couple over the weekend, one with the author of philosophy, Elizabeth Day, and the other with the model and founder of Girl Talk, Adua Boa. And I was actually gripped by both of them. And obviously, we'll talk about their content in a minute. But on a very light note... What I loved as someone who does a lot of it myself was how much you swear. What I found, when people are suffering, when people are truly suffering because they have a life-threatening illness or someone they love has died or whatever has happened, sometimes swearing is the only thing that does the business. You know, acknowledging to them that it is... Can I swear? It is yes. shit. Yes, come on. It is shit. <laughs> 
kind of gets to the heart of the matter. So I swear a lot with clients and I swear in my life and I shouldn't. And my mother would disapprove from heaven, although she did actually swear quite a bit too. So <laughs> I, I, but I also, actually it's weird because I'm a complete hypocrite because when I hear other people swearing, I'm quite disapproving. Do you, do you two swear? I swear Can't all stop. the time. <laughs> Yes, I'm a terrible swearer. So is my mother. Very interesting. (laughs) We could morph this into a whole podcast about swearing. I remember once when I was 21, I just started working for the Tory party. And I was sitting in a meeting with Ken Baker, the party chairman. And he swore. And I was utterly, utterly shocked. Amazing. (laughs) That's so funny. When grown-ups swear, it's like, oh, my goodness. I swear all the time partly to make people pay attention. Anyway, look, we're talking about therapy. Can I, I, know... I, I should know this, but what's your relationship to each other? Ooh, no. Ooh. <laughs> Listeners are Bloody hell. all the time. <laughs> the incredible chemistry we have together. There's a, there's a lot of giggles. On? There's a lot of giggles going, going on. on. Just, just tell me. Needs. Well, let that remain a mystery. But suffice to say, we've been friends for a very long time. But we're now off for the summer. Are we going to be spending it together, you ask? <laughs> we'll be back on the 19th of September. But in the meantime, please keep in touch with Country and Townhouse. There'll be the July-August edition of the magazine out at any moment and online. You can see our sister podcasts and newsletters, including the brand new travel one that launched on Friday. And you can see them on our website. You can sign up from there. I'm sure you all know by now it's countryandtownhouse.co.uk and you add a forward slash newsletter. But thank you for listening. We've now been going for well over a year, and frankly, it's aged me by a decade. But please come back in September for lots more. Actually, I think it's kept me young, I must say. I've loved doing this podcast. And wherever you've been listening around the world, from America and Peru to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, have a wonderful summer, and thank you for staying with us. Goodbye. Goodbye.